welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome to today's special episode of First Incision. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by Julie Howell, who is an incredible surgical oncologist at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. She's been kind enough today to go over melanoma with me, including a thousand questions that I had about melanoma management, as well as operative inguinal lymph node dissection. So to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm a surgical oncologist based at Westmead in Sydney. In terms of surgical oncology, a lot of general surgeons could call themselves surgical oncologists because we deal with, most people deal with cancer in some form or another. But for me, um, a surgical oncologist means I treat a lot of melanoma, soft tissue sarcoma, lots of skin cancers, and I also do some thyroid and parathyroid work, the occasional parotid. I did my training in New South Wales. I guess my original plan was to work in a rural setting because uh, I'm originally from Tamworth and um, I had a very good experience working in Orange as a JMO, but things just fell into place so that now I work in Sydney, <laughs> <laughs> very far from rural practice. So I did my training in general surgery and in the Western rotation in Sydney. So um, a lot of uh, Westmead and Nepean hospital terms and um, a variety of rural terms. And then I did two years after I did my exam of fellowship training. Uh, one was doing the head and neck surgical oncology fellowship at Westmead. And the second year I did uh, the surgical, I was the senior registrar at Prince of Wales Hospital doing surgical oncology. And then I was fortunate enough to get a job back at Westmead after that. And uh Yeah, so here I am now. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, given your background, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about melanoma. It's one of those things where we see a little bit of it in our rural rotations, but I think in the city, a lot of it goes directly to the specialty centers. So if you don't sort of rotate through a melanoma service, you may not see a lot of it before your exam. Um, I have a few questions. I've done a couple of podcast episodes actually on melanoma and management. Uh, But a few questions sort of came up as I was going through the curriculum, which I was struggling with. So I thought maybe we could spend some time talking to you about those. Yes, sure. The first question I have is actually out of our curriculum. It talks about knowing about the precursor lesions for melanoma and knowing about them and their sort of natural history. I have come across in situ melanoma, so lentiga maligna. Is that what they mean when they talk about precursor lesions or is there something else we should be knowing about? It is hard to second guess what the people who wrote the curriculum were thinking about, but my take is that there are some lesions that are a risk factor for developing a melanoma. So um, you have dysplastic nevi. Uh, So dysplastic nevus is just very basically a funny-looking mole, so they're big and they're um, variegated and often poorly circumscribed. And a very small percentage of dysplastic nevi will progress into a melanoma, but having dysplastic nevi um, is a risk factor for developing melanoma. And the more that you have, the higher the risk. 
Then you have, I guess, more typical precursor lesions such as lentigo maligna and melanoma in situ. So lentigo maligna and melanoma in situ are sort of on a spectrum of in situ disease. So um, where where uh, lentigo maligna is sort of more towards the start of um, progression towards a melanoma. And only a small percentage of lentigo malignas actually become invasive. The data is a bit unclear about that, but most places say about 5% of them will transform into an invasive melanoma. And so they tend not to do anything very exciting, but there is a risk of them developing into melanoma. So we do tend to treat them. And then melanoma in situ, the melanoma cells within the epidermis have sort of, they have the pagetoid spread. That's, I think, the main difference between, for basic surgeon understanding, um, between lentigo maligna and melanoma in situ. I mean, there are a few other cytological and um, histopathological features that differ between the two, but they're basically both forms of melanoma in situ, and there's a risk of invasive melanoma developing from both of them. I didn't know that lentigo maligna wasn't just in situ melanoma, so I'll have to look back at, at that. Yes, so there are all sorts of things that you find out when you start reading. <laughs> it's good to know. So the next question I have is one that should be very simple, but I couldn't find a clear answer on. So in the staging of melanoma, they talk about ulceration, making it a, a T, A or B. Does the ulceration have to do with just ulceration on the histopathology or also if it's clinically ulcerated or you would see it anyway on the histopathology if it clinically was ulcerated? Sort of does it does it matter which of the two you use to describe ulceration? Generally, I would say the gold standard is the histopathological um, definition of ulceration, which you know should correlate with your clinical impression of it. So I would go with the histopathological definition. So the next one is in the workup for melanoma and about staging of melanoma. If you diagnose a melanoma, so you've done your excisional biopsy and you've got your diagnosis and you examine the draining lymph nodes and clinically you can't feel any lymphadenopathy. For breast cancer, for example, we would then do an ultrasound of the lymph nodes and do a biopsy if there was any enlargement. For melanoma, if there's if they're not clinically involved, do you do a preoperative ultrasound for the nodal basin, or do you just go ahead and do the central lymph node biopsy? I just go and do the central node biopsy. Okay. Um, I guess particularly for melanoma is a little bit different to breast in that, particularly if you've got a lesion that's in the midline, so something in the middle of the back or something on your nose, it's difficult to predict where the lymphatic drainage. So you might do an ultrasound and be ultrasounding the wrong lymph node basin. Mm. So I think it's better to do the, I don't think there's much to be gained by doing an ultrasound if you're not going to do a sentinel node biopsy. And when do you do systemic staging for melanoma? So CT or PET? Yeah, so that's a little bit, well, not controversial, but there's not a lot of um, evidence that supports use of imaging in early stage melanoma. So but definitely for nodal disease, um, if you've got macroscopic nodal disease, they say doing a PET scan, a PET CT uh, with some brain imaging is um, what you should do. Not everyone has access to PET scans, so doing a CT, head, neck, chest, abdo, pelvis can also be done. For patients who have sentinel node positive disease, so say stage 3A, for example, 
there's less yield in doing staging imaging with up to maybe 5% of the yield, you know, finding something on those scans. Um, so it's, sort of, it's a bit of an individual thing. Um, so I know some people will stage patients with stage 3A disease and others won't. So it's one of those gray areas. But certainly for macroscopic nodal disease, you do it. And then you've got stage 2 disease. So if you've got a thick primary, again, the evidence is a bit limited. And there are some people who will stage patients with a thick primary melanoma. And there are those who won't. I think if you're in the exam situation, you stick to what the guidelines say. And you can say, you know, there's no evidence that it helps for microscopic nodal disease and stage two disease. It's a bit iffy as well. Fantastic. Thanks for that. The next question is actually one from my study group, so we can give Brie Lawrence a shout out. <laughs> she was asking about um, if you have a melanoma and there's satellite or in-transit metastases, that automatically makes it NC disease. So do you still need to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy if clinically the nodes are negative? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because I had a patient like that about two weeks ago. So um, this is a lady who presented with a primary melanoma, hadn't been excised yet, just a suspicious lesion. So I did an excision biopsy and uh, it was four millimetres thick with uh, a satellite lesion. So because she's got the satellite lesion, I'm not doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy in her because it's not going to add to her management. Um, Because she's got stage three disease, um, she is eligible for adjuvant immune therapy. So a sentinel node biopsy is not going to add anything. Um, It's just a prognostic thing. I did do an ultrasound of her lymph node basins, which was clear and uh, she was staged as well. I have had another patient who had presented with a primary and and in transit disease. And again, I don't see the value in doing a sentinel node biopsy if they're going to have systemic treatment anyway. It's not going to change what you do or their stage. So why put them through it? No, no. Why put them through a procedure? Yeah, because every procedure, you have to think about, you know, the pros and cons and the morbidities. And, you know, generally sentinel node biopsies are pretty um, easily tolerated procedure, but you know, uh, particularly if you've got a melanoma on the leg and you have an inguinal node, sentinel node biopsy, um, there is a small risk of lymphedema. So why subject a patient to that if it's not necessary, if it's not going to add to their overall management and prognosis? And of course, you would always say that you discuss it in an MDT. (laughs) Always discuss patients at MDTs. So my next question is around sentinel lymph node biopsy in somebody who's previously had a wide local excision or a local flap to close the area. They obviously tell us not to do a flap to close an excisional biopsy for a pigmented lesion, but I'm not really clear why that matters and why that influences your ability to do a sentinel node biopsy. Can you explain that concept to me? So doing a wide excision reduces the accuracy of the sentinel node biopsy in that the lymphocentigraphy may not be as accurate because the lymphatic drainage has been altered. It's, it's another grey area of management in melanoma, again, because I know some people who, if the patient has had a wide excision, they'll say, no, nah, it's not worth, you know, the accuracy of the sentinel node biopsy 
is affected adversely by this. So if I if the patient has a sentinel node biopsy and has a negative sentinel node, uh, am I going to believe that result? I guess it depends to some extent what sort of treatment they've had of the primary site. I have done sentinel node biopsies in people who've had wide excisions done prior to them seeing me. And in a couple of cases, they have had a positive sentinel node uh, result. So it's been worthwhile doing. Um, I tend to avoid it if they've had some complex flap or a huge skin graft, because particularly if it's on the scalp, um, if you've got someone who, and they've got a five centimetre skin split skin graft, certainly if they, you know, it may, may change the lymphatic drainage from a unilateral to bilateral when the tumour might have just um, drained um, to one side. It's certainly um, there are studies which has said that it does impact on the accuracy of the procedure. So if you have a really large primary melanoma or that you think, you know, a, a lesion that looks to be a melanoma, what do you do in that situation? So I'll do an incisional biopsy. So, and bearing in mind that if you have to do an incisional biopsy, the accuracy is not as good as doing excision biopsy. That's why excisional biopsies are what's recommended. So with incisional biopsies, sometimes you can do a punch biopsy or I sometimes take a little ellipse of tissue through the most abnormal part of the lesion. And you do it in such a way that it's not going to compromise what you do when you come back to do the wide excision. And when you say the most abnormal part of the lesion, how do you decide that? Well, often melanomas are quite, uh, you might have a nodular part to it and, and a flatter part, so biopsy the nodular part or the ulcerated part. Um, if you've got quite a big lesion, I've had patients who've had a pigmented lesion taking, you know, say four centimetres on their cheek, on their face, um, and you could take a few little punch biopsies from different sites um, just to get a more accurate representation of the lesion. If you are seeing a patient and you've diagnosed a melanoma and you examine their lymph node basins and you can feel palpable nodes that feel suspicious, you then go on and organize an ultrasound and an FNA of the suspicious nodes. The node is negative on the FNA. I mean, there's lots of reasons patients may have palpable nodes or abnormal feeling nodes. What would you do? Would you repeat the FNA? Um, you know, would you do a sentinel node biopsy? Would it depend on any particular factor? I would tend to just go ahead with the sentinel node biopsy in that case and see what that shows. If the sentinel node biopsy is negative and they have persistent lymphadenopathy, I would treat it like anyone with lymphadenopathy and repeat the biopsy um, down the track. You can always also do a core biopsy uh, rather than an FNA. Um, you can diagnose it. Um, melanoma just with an FNA, but often a core biopsy will give you more tissue, obviously. And um, when you do have a melanoma, having more tissue is good because uh, you can then send it for BRAF testing. And um, So we've talked a lot about sentinel lymph node biopsy. Do you do a sentinel lymph node biopsy for melanoma like you do for breast cancer? So you do the dual tracer, so a lymphocentigraphy, and do you inject blue dye at the time of the surgery? Yes. Yes. So, yeah, so they all have lymphocentigraphy and the images are fused with SPECT CT. So it gives you a good idea. And when I first started doing melanoma surgery as a fellow, SPECT CT wasn't really a thing. 
And so uh, interpreting the lymphocytograms was quite challenging at times. So, yeah, the, C, the SPEC CT has been very helpful. And then, uh, yeah, when once the patient's asleep, they inject some uh, intradermal, do an intradermal injection of patent blue dye at the primary site as well. And if you have a melanoma that's in the midline or on the trunk, for example, how do you decide which lymph node basin to do? And if the tracer goes to more than one basin, would you do a sentinel biopsy at all of those locations? Yes, I do, unfortunately. <laughs> It's a lot of work. Yes, yeah. So the I mean, we just need to remember the sentinel nodes, the first node to receive lymphatic drainage from the tumor site. So you can have more than you know. You can have lymphatics going off in opposite directions directly to lymph nodes. So you do to be for completeness uh, where possible. You should do what the lymphocytogram suggests you should, wow. <laughs> which can be quite. Uh, well, you know, you can you have a bit of a sinking heart <laughs> when you open <laughs> the, the test result and you think, oh, okay, both axillas and the neck, <laughs> good. <laughs> and, yeah, and I have had patients with uh, more than, so a positive sentinel node in different, in more than one different nodal basin too. So, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. I guess you have to go mm. to wherever it's draining to. That's correct. Mm. I feel like I've asked you a million questions about sentinel node biopsy. Sorry, there's obviously a lot of questions about that. My next question is about um, isolated limb infusion and perfusion. I don't, I've read a lot about it and I think I have my head around how it's actually done, but I don't really understand how it fits into the current treatment modality or, or pathways for patients with melanoma, especially now we have all these newer treatments what do you think the role is when would you use these treatments for melanoma yeah so it is a bit it has changed since the advent of targeted therapy and immune therapy so i guess it's a lesser role so there are two things so firstly it's a technique that is not practiced widely so for example in sydney there's only one place that does it and because we've got all these other treatments, you tend to reserve it for patients in whom other treatments have failed um, or there's some reason that they can't have systemic therapy or surgery. Or So it's, it's sort of patient-specific and disease-specific. And it brings up the whole, you know, how do you treat in-transit disease? And there's no one way to treat in-transit melanoma. It's sort of very patient-specific. So you can have patients who have... Yeah, these two or three millimeter deposits, you know, one pops up every few months or so and you just resect them. And eventually I find their disease does progress over time. And so they have more appropriate treatments. And now it's it tends to be more the systemic treatments uh, rather than more of the regional therapies. But having said that, occasionally there's a patient who is suitable for ILI and um, in Sydney it's ILI that's used. And as you've probably read, ILI has the advantage of not requiring the bypass circuit. You can be done under a block, doesn't have to be done under general anaesthetic. So old people who aren't fit for anything else can be treated with it and you can treat, they can have more than one treatment whereas ILP is far more labour-intensive and um, potentially more morbid. 
but I think both of them are not used as frequently as they have been in the past. Mm -hmm. And obviously the disease that you're targeting has to be isolated to a limb that you want to treat as well. Yeah, that's right. If a patient has disease elsewhere, so lung mets as well as their leg full of intransit metastases, then they'd probably be tried on um, some systemic therapy first. And there are all sorts of trials going on about injectable treatments as well um, for lesions that are sort of um, resistant to other forms of treatment. So, yeah, it's not just ILI and ILP that are used. These are the direct injections into the tumours in transit. Yeah, I think I read about those, like the BCG vaccine and Rose Bengal and those sorts of things. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm hoping they just want us to know a little bit about it for the exam, but not any actual detail. Well, I think you, it, it's just with any exam answer, you just need to adapt it to the situation. So there are patient factors and disease factors. And if someone's got a couple of fairly solitary intransits that are amenable to surgery, then you would operate um, having discussed them at the melanoma MDT, of course, and staged them. Um, but if someone has you know, this huge fungating mass, then surgery may not be their first, the best option. Along a similar line, I haven't seen a lot of surgery for melanoma metastases. I've come across a couple of small bowel mets that are either bleeding or causing obstruction that have been operated on. But when would you consider surgery for melanoma metastases? It is case-by-case basis. And we do it less frequently than we used to, given that there are now more effective systemic treatments. But metastasectomies can be done for brain mets, and they're often done for brain mets still. As a general surgeon, occasionally you do get the symptomatic bowel mets, so causing obstruction or bleeding. I've had to do fewer laparotomies in the last you know, 10 years than I did when I first started in this field. But you do get patients who've been on systemic therapy and they have a selective response to the treatment. So I've, and I've operated on a few people in that circumstance where all their other diseases disappeared, but they've still got um, auxiliary lymphadenopathy. So I've done an auxiliary clearance on those people or a neck dissection. So when you're deciding on to whether to operate on someone with stage four disease, there are patient and disease factors. So with the disease, you don't want to operate on someone who's progressing rapidly because putting them through an operation, if they're going to progress very quickly and die is not a kind thing to do and to anyone. But if someone's got a solitary liver met, for example, that would certainly be someone to consider in the context of discussing it with the medical oncologist, et cetera. And then you have to have whether, whether the patient is fit for surgery. Another topic in melanoma I'm not clear on is what is the role of radiotherapy in melanoma? So there's this myth about radiotherapy in melanoma that melanoma is not very radiosensitive. I guess if you're comparing it to Merkel cell carcinoma, that is true, but it's still sensitive to radiotherapy and radiotherapy can be an effective treatment. The main use of radiotherapy now is mainly for metastatic disease, so um, for 
treatment of brain mets, for example, or palliative treatment of things, bone mets or fungating out of the skin sort of thing. It used to be used more frequently in the adjuvant setting for nodal disease, um, but there was a trial, um, a TROG trial published within the last five, 10 years where they found that radiotherapy did not impact on overall survival, which makes sense. I mean, it's a local treatments like surgery. It tends to be reserved for patients with a high burden of disease. So if you've got multiple large nodes and particularly with extranodal spread, then the patient will be more likely to have receive adjuvant radiotherapy in that setting. Um, but if you've had someone who has a two centimetre lymph node, no extranodal spread, no other nodes involved, then um, they wouldn't have radiotherapy. What other topics do you think trainees usually struggle with in terms of melanoma? Is there specific questions you get over and over again that I haven't asked you? Um, I get a lot of questions about how to manage in transit disease. And I think that just reflects there's no one way um, to do that, to treat. Um, and it's very uh, patients and disease specific. I also have a lot of questions, have had a lot of questions about sentinel lymph node biopsy and management of stage three disease. And because that's been a significant area of change, um, particularly in the last five years. So when I was training, you had a positive sentinel node biopsy, you did a, a completion lymphadenectomy, which is um, not what we do now. So that's been a big change. Um, the advent of effective systemic therapies has also been a huge change and it's now sort of infiltrating. So they started off with metastatic stage four disease uh, and they've infiltrated into stage three disease and now they're talking about doing trials in patients with stage two melanoma, uh, giving them immunotherapy to see whether that reduces the risk of um, metastatic disease. So um, the melanoma management landscape has changed a lot. And I think it is worthwhile knowing a little bit about the systemic therapies. I mean, not in the huge details, but I think it's important to know um, because patients will ask you um, about them. And, you know, it's nice to be able to say some basic facts <laughs> about it. <laughs> I know that um, at the moment we don't really give those treatments neoadjuvantly for patients who don't have stage four disease, obviously it's all in the adjuvant setting, but um, I heard that maybe they're doing trials in the neoadjuvant setting now as well. They are for stage three melanoma. There are a few trials around at the moment, testing both immune therapy and or um, targeted therapy in those patients. So basically they have several weeks treatment of systemic therapy, have their surgery and then go back onto the drug afterwards. So that may well be the way things go in the future as Fantastic. well. Did you want to talk about the targeted treatments? Give us your your basic fact rundown. <laughs> I can give you my I can give you my basic fact rundown. <laughs> what would you like to know about them? Uh, I mean, I've you know done probably as much reading as most trainees do, and got very lost in all of the uh, um, MEC BRAF pathways and. Um, uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitors and things. I guess I don't really have a good handle and I don't know whether we would ever make this decision, but when you would choose one over the other and why, like I know if they don't have a BRAF mutation, then there's not much point giving them a BRAF or a MEK inhibitor. But if they do, do you ever just give them the immunotherapy instead of the BRAF inhibitors? I don't really understand when you would give one over the other. 
Yeah, that's more in the realm of the medical oncologists. Um, and obviously, as you said, the BRAF status is the um, key, firstly. So, um, you know, as part of your management of patients, you make sure that they've had um, BRAF testing of the tumour. And I guess in terms of the differences between the treatments, um, the when patients respond to immune therapy, it tends to be a more durable response. And there are rules in the PBS about um, if you've had one type of treatment that precludes you from having something at some other point. So these are all sort of fine details that the medical oncologists are very familiar with and I'm not so, <laughs> so I won't go there. But um, basically, as you know, there are two um, different types of systemic therapy for melanoma now that are used now. Uh, there's the targeted therapy, so for patients who have the, the BRAF mutation, and that's up to 50% of melanomas have that mutation. It tends to be in younger patients as well. And they have found that using a combination of a BRAF and a MEK inhibitor provides the best response. And the problem with the targeted treatment has been the development of resistant tumour clones. So patient would go on to the BRAF inhibitor or their disease would melt away and then six months later would come back with a vengeance. So they found by adding a MEK inhibitor, which also acts on that pathway, it reduces that. And so the responses are more durable and, and longer. Immune therapy does have some quite toxic side effects, um, particularly if you use ipilimumab and nivolumab in combination. So with the immune therapy, you've got the anti-CTLA-4 antibodies like ipilimumab, and that was that were the first class that was sort of developed. And then they've got the immune checkpoint inhibitors, which uh, work through PD-1. And basically the anti-CTLA-4 inhibitors uh, stimulate the T cells to attack tumor cells, in my basic explanation. And um, the checkpoint inhibitors block the PD1 receptor on the tumor cell. So the T cells aren't inactivated. So, again, the sum effect is to recruit more T cells to attack tumor cells. So, that's my basic explanation. <laughs> and the main side effects with immune therapy is uh, the autoimmune side effects. Um, and they can be quite significant and have quite uh, significant effects on patients over the long term, um, particularly <laughs> if you have developed hypothyroidism and you have to take thyroxine for the rest of your life or it affects the pituitary, so you have to um, replace the steroids and things. So it can have some quite significant side effects. So when considering that they're thinking about treating patients with stage two disease. Um, I think uh, when there's a 20% of rate of people requiring hormonal replacement um, after having immune therapy, it's a decision that you don't make lightly. I'm trying to do more operative type questions when I have specialists on the program, because obviously a lot of this stuff we can read up in the books, but getting the experience of an operative surgeon is invaluable. One of the operations I have never seen before and have read a lot about but still don't really have my head around is an inguinal lymph node dissection. I'm wondering if you would mind running us through inguinal lymph node dissection. Okay. So when I'm talking to a patient about an inguinal node dissection, a lot of the explanation discusses 
what happens after the surgery because it is can be a very morbid procedure. Um, the surgery itself is technically not too bad, um, depending on the, the amount of disease that there is there. So when talking to a patient about it, need to inform them that most, particularly, yeah, inguinal node dissection, most patients get some degree of lymphedema afterwards. I use wound drains, which often stay in for a long time. They often can get some numbness of the thigh. And in the short term, often the wounds fall apart, get infected, and it can be quite a nightmare for the patient. It's good that we don't have to do quite so many because we don't have to do them for positive sentinel node biopsies anymore. When I do one, basically it's a matter of with any operation, you define the boundaries of your resection and you have certain structures that you preserve and it's a matter of sort of going through things as a stepwise fashion. So I tend to do sort of a, a bit of a lazy S incision. In taking out the tissue, you want to take out all the tissue about eight to 10 centimetres above the inguinal ligament. So you make your incision as high as it has to be to access that tissue. And you need to raise flaps, which um, I tend to cut down to scarpa's fascia, and that's the level that of the flap. And in operating in this area, because of the high rate of wound breakdown, you need to be careful about handling the wound edges. So try not to handle them too much, um, not constantly moving retractors and things like that. So to avoid traumatizing the tissue too much. And basically, I find the ASIS inferior to that is where the sartorius is, and um, that's the lateral extent of the um, dissection. I tend to follow that down on the more medial aspect. The pubic tubercles are a good landmark. And uh, then inferior to that, you find the, um, the ductor muscles. So ductor longus is your, the medial extent of the excision. And you need to dissect the fascia off the muscles. The order in which I do things is dictated to some extent by how much, where the disease is and how much there is. So the basic principles are to remove all the tissue from the femoral triangle, <laughs> preserving the femoral artery and vein and nerve. I find it easiest to come down from above. So you're taking the tissue from uh, superficial to external oblique aponeurosis. You come down to the inguinal ligament, um, you find your boundaries of the femoral triangle, and then just below the inguinal ligament, you palpate for the artery and you find the vessels that way. And I basically have to skeletonize the anterior half of the femoral artery and the vein. Whether you ligate and take the great saphenous vein is debatable. I tend to do it if there's a lot of disease present in that area, just as an oncological thing. Some people preserve the long saphenous vein because uh, they believe there's less lymphedema if you do that. I think for the purpose of the exam, um, it's like doing auxiliary dissection. You define your boundaries you find the vital structures that you need to preserve. Most um, oncological dissections, the lymphadenectomies, are a dissection of nerves and vessels. And do you try to keep it all as a block? Yes. And sort of, yeah, yeah and sort of like lift it up? Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. And would you do that mostly with sort of metzies or do you diathermy? Or? I do a combination of things. So I use a bit of diathermy, harmonic, 
and metsies. I usually use sharp dissect, like the scissors along the vessels. I find that easiest. And you're doing a clearance pretty routinely if there's involved nodes at presentation, but no metastases. So clinically involved nodes and you biopsy them. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe if there was a nodal recurrence or would you just go straight to um, systemic treatment? Um, If it's a solitary node, then yeah, it'd be a discussion MDT thing. So yes, you could just um, resect that. And then they would have adjuvant systemic therapy. It would depend on how big the disease was. So if you had a giant node there, probably would rather resect it while it's resectable uh, in case it doesn't respond to systemic therapy. I've also read about using sartorius as a sort of a flap up to help. Yeah, yeah. So some people do that where you mobilise the proximal end of the sartorius you divide it off its attachment to the asis and you move it over and suture it to the external oblique aponeurosis and a little bit on to the um, rectus femoris as well just to cover the vessels i leave a wound drain in because yeah there's always heaps of seroma fluid that accumulates in patients and Afterwards, um, I refer them to the lymphedema therapist, the lymphedema management and education. The operation is quite enjoyable one to do, <laughs> but it's not. The effects of the operation are not so great for most patients, unfortunately. And when do you also do a pelvic dissection? I know that with melanoma, you can also take the um, nodes in the pelvic sidewall. When would you do that? So that's another area of a little bit of controversy and um, there was a trial um, that was designed to look at whether doing a pelvic um, lymphadenectomy was worthwhile as well and whether it contributed to or increased risk of lymphedema. One of the people who I trained under used to do pelvic lymph node dissection as well as an inguinal node dissection and that's what I started off doing but I've become less aggressive. So if I'm doing an inguinal node dissection, I'll stage the patient using a PET scan. So if there is activity in the pelvic nodes, then I'll do a pelvic node dissection as well. If there isn't and the nodes don't look suspicious on CT, um, I'll just do an inguinal node dissection. And I think part of the reason I've changed is because there is a more effective systemic therapy. So I do the inguinal lymphadenectomy for symptom control, for local control, and um, the patient's at very high risk of distant recurrence. So taking out the pelvic nodes as an elective procedure is not really going to reduce that risk. To finish us off, if you have a moment, I'd love to talk to you about your what seems like amazing life balance that you have as a surgical oncologist and incredible triathlete. I don't know if it feels as balanced to you as it looks from the outside <laughs> to me, but um, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, your life and, you know, how you got into triathlon and how you fit that in around your, your schedule? So I started triathlon once I was a boss. So when I was a registrar, I found it difficult to fit much else in apart from working and studying and completing all the requirements that you have to complete. I would try to do some exercise and I've always done running and a bit of maybe a bit of swimming. So once I finished my 
part two exam, I decided I wanted to do a marathon because I'd always wanted to do one. So I actually entered one. So that I started running long distances. And then one of my sisters was into triathlon and she moved to Sydney and um, I got sucked into the vortex that is triathlon and sort of went from there. I, I've always enjoyed exercise or sport and I enjoy triathlon because it's a good mix mixture of different things, um, different skills, and um, it enables me to have something that's completely different to work. And I mix with completely different people and get to travel to do different races in different parts of the world and different parts of Australia. And I think it's good to have something other than work in your life. And it does look like I have a very good work-life balance, but I have a very hectic life as well. So I think you need to be careful that you have a little bit of give in your weekly timetable. I find I have to be quite organised in terms of my both weekly schedule, but also, you know, if I say I want to go and compete in a race somewhere, I have to look at, plan my on-call accordingly and have to be quite organized. So, um, which that being organized can be stressful in itself as well. <laughs> so it is good to have times where I, I don't have to worry about work or <laughs> training or competing. So, yeah, but I think it's important to have interests outside of work and um, whether that be your family, uh, people have various levels of uh, family commitment, um, but it's good to have time for yourself as well as a general principle. But when you're studying for the exam, it, there's not a lot of time for yourself. <laughs> and I certainly didn't put aside a lot much time. I think I maybe had Friday nights off studying, but um, most of the rest of the time I was either working or studying. So, But it does get better. Once you're not a trainer, you have a little more power over your time can reflect uh, on what you're saying about your sister drawing you in. My sister did the same to me. So it's, um, and once you're in, it's just addictive. <laughs> it is. It is very addictive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, our listeners may not know that you've done Kona twice, which just blows my mind. Kona's always been on my bucket list. I don't know if I'll ever actually qualify, but um, that's such an incredible achievement. I can't imagine how that must have felt to actually do. Yeah. Well, I think qualifying for it was the enjoyable bit and actually going over there was was great like it's um it's sort of for people who don't know anything about triathlon it's an iconic race most people who do triathlon sort of on the bucket list or they aspire to do it or you know it's just up there and it is an experience um the actual race is quite awful (laughs) because of the condition so um Kona is in Hawaii. It's extremely humid and hot and windy. And the race is a 3.8 kilometre swim, which is the enjoyable part because the water is beautiful. Then there's a 180 kilometre bike ride, which the course is renowned for being windy. And generally what happens is you get a headwind going out. And then by the time you're coming back, there's a headwind as well. And it's not a, a light breeze. It's, it's a very strong wind. And it's very hot and you're cycling in the lava fields. It's like an oven. And then you do the run, which the first part of the run is good. 
because um, it's through the township of Kona, lots of people cheering, etc. But then you go go out of town and mm. you're in the lava fields and the sun's beating down <laughs> and it's as humid as anything and uh, it's certainly a very difficult race. I mean, it was it's you feel good when you finish. That's Crossing sure. that finish line must <laughs> just be amazing. It's certainly an achievement. Yeah, so I'm very privileged to have qualified twice for it and I would like to go back and try again because I feel I have unfinished business there. My husband thinks I'm a, a maniac, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I would like to, to do that again, but yeah. Thanks so much for talking to me today. I'm sorry to have kept you so long. No, that's all right. It's been a pleasure. hope it's of some use. <laughs> a lot of the questions I had, um, the people in my study group and other people I've asked didn't know the answers to as well. So I'm sure it'll be useful to a lot of people. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. So thank you very much for inviting me on. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!